0: So um, it is great to be able to enjoy uh, the scriptures together and so we find ourselves last week Pastor Travis walked through uh, Esther chapter 1 and now I get the privilege to walk through Esther chapter 2. So what I want to do is I just want to read the first four verses it's going to seem, if you haven't been reading or keeping up with Esther, it's going to seem extremely random and bizarre that I read these verses. But I just want to say, welcome to the book of Esther. Okay, So I'll read these verses and then I'll pray and then uh, we'll we'll go at, at it together. And uh, so the word of God says this, Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti, woman who used to be queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti this pleased the king and he did so so bizarre let's pray (laughs) let's pray Father, it is bizarre because it is a picture of brokenness. And although it might be a different cultural expression in a different time period, we have the same brokenness. We live in it. We walk around in it. Some of the things we say as normal are broken. This world is broken. And our hope is that you are Are at work. The cross screams. You're greater than sin. The resurrection screams. That you're more powerful. Than sin. Satan and even death. All of it screams. How much you love us. And how much there is hope. And yet father. As we walk through. The book of Esther. We see broken. Peace after broken peace. We ask, O oh God, that what happens is that we would hate sin. And we would run from it. And we would run into your arms. And we would see you at work all over the place. And Father, we would treasure you more. And we would want to love those around us. With the love that you've captured our lives with. Father that prayer alone is nothing short of a miracle. And so we know we're beginning right now. In desperation and in great need of you to show up. And so we just ask. Father humble our prideful hearts. Shape us in this moment to look more like Jesus. And fill us with love that it may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. So that we may be able to prove what is excellent and be found blameless on the last day. Father, show us your glory in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Fingerprints are amazing. They're remarkable. I don't know if you've ever looked, but... I struggle to see them and I know they're there. Every single person. It's a unique imprint that identifies people. We know in the crime scene investigator shows or movies. We know from real life. They're looking at fingerprints to identify criminals and to eliminate suspects. Because fingerprints are unique to each person and amazing. But fingerprints are not only amazing and unique, they also tell you that someone has been there. Like when I go to the back of my van and I look on the window and there are handprints all over the window and they do, they look kind of like they make this motion kind of thing. One thing you know is that I need to invest in maybe more soap. But also, you know, That kids have been there. Same on the back door. When you go out the back, it's kind of a glass door. I mean, who needs a handle when you can push on the door and move it like that? It's just like, like that. And you look at that back door. My front door has glass too. It's just like, you know, they've been there. People have been around. Fingerprints tell you someone's been there. And what we witness in the book of Esther What we witness is that God's name does not appear. As Pastor Travis told us last week, God's name does not appear in 167 verses of the book. His name is nowhere to be found. But what we do see are the fingerprints of God orchestrating this story and we know ultimately orchestrating all of human history towards his great glory and the good of his people. And as we read, we'll begin to see his fingerprints are all over the place. He's there, even though you can't see his name. And so, to look for him in the scriptures is an act of not only a kind of an investigative search, but it's also a call that when you see him, there's there's something you have to do. Will you trust him? Will you surrender to him or his values become your values and there are certain times that there are things that eclipse us being able to see his work it's how the world defines all kinds of things how the world defines beauty or how the world defines value as we invest into the Kind of the lenses of the world. As we look at things through the world's lenses. Many times what we see is not God. We see brokenness or pain. Or we see all kinds of other things that draw us in. And so what the scriptures paint for us here. Are the things that eclipse to the natural eye. The fingerprints of God. But with eyes of the spirit. We will be able to look at Esther chapter 2. And see his fingerprints all over it. So as we dive in today, there's three main things that we need to see. Three main things. First of all, beauty. Beauty. There is an emphasis in Esther chapter 2 on what is beautiful. And there's this wrestle. Is beauty primarily external or internal? You continue on in the story and you also see But there's a call to faithfulness. What will we do? How will we be faithful? Will we be obedient to God? Will we conform? Or will we be transformed? And then you begin to see, as I've already articulated, the fingerprints of God. Might be summarized with one word, providence. God's acting in history. Is he absent or is he present? And we want to declare The answers to these are to be found in Esther chapter 2. Now, we've got to make sure that we remind ourselves of what was told to us last week. The book of Esther is not a prescription. When a doctor gives you a prescription, you're supposed to take it and immediately apply it. This is not commending to you how to live. This is God telling a story of history. And actually, as you read through this story, he's doing the opposite. He's showing you the brokenness of the world and how not to live. And so we've got to be very careful as you read through, especially Old Testament narrative, that you're not saying, well, he's telling me this is how I should live. Trust me, this is not how God says you should live in Esther chapter 2. And so... Let's look at it. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And it says at the very first verse, after these things. What are the these things? What's he speaking of? Well, he's talking about Esther chapter 1. And here's what we know. Here's what we know. Because of the disobedience of the people of God, The people of Israel were divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And in 722, the northern kingdom Israel was attacked and taken over by Assyria. About 100 years later in 612, Babylon rose to power and squashed Assyria. And then around 598 BC, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and took over, destroying the temple, and capturing the people of God. And it came in waves. Wave one, about 598, they said about 10,000 or so Jews were taken to Babylon. But then there was a second wave when Nebuchadnezzar comes back in and kills everyone. And so it is said that around twenty to 25,000 Jews were taken back to Babylon. So you have, the story goes, they either died of being slaughtered, they died of starvation, or they ran or were sent away to Egypt, or they were taken to Babylon. And if you read in the book of Jeremiah, you will see Jeremiah was one who was taken to Egypt. In the midst of this exile. And so. What happens. As with all earthly kingdoms. They don't last forever. And so there was a group called the. Medes and the Persians. With a king called Cyrus. And Cyrus. Is in some senses. Made to be. This kind of messianic. Redeemer kind of figure. But he doesn't love God. It actually says that. He worshipped the Babylonian god Marduk. And that's, he believed that that Babylonian god was the one that told him all of a sudden to institute religious liberty. And so he says, we want everybody to worship whomever they want. And if the Jews want a temple, let's rebuild it for them. So then he sends some Jews back to Israel and they start rebuilding a temple. Not because Cyrus loved God, but because he was fine with whatever. It was a political move. And so people go back and there was the rebuilding of the temple. Now, between the rebuilding of the temple and the activities of Esther, I mean of Ezra, we find the book of Esther. Specifically between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7, we find the book of Esther. That span of time in history is about 85 years esther spans 10 years so somewhere between ezra 6 and ezra 7 you find the book of esther and the king that is ruling at this time is king ahasuerus which also has a greek name which is king xerxes which you might see in other places in the scriptures So King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, I might call him King Xerxes more because it's easier to say for me. But whatever you see in the scriptures, Ahasuerus is Xerxes. It's just his Greek name. Now it says, after these things, meaning, if we can throw up the map, King Ahasuerus had this kingdom and it went from blue box to blue box. We don't exactly know What all the general boundaries were, but that whole swath from here to here, modern-day Pakistan to modern-day Sudan, he was in charge of it. And the capital city is the Red Star. That's Susa. And that's where this whole book of Esther takes place, is in the capital city of Susa. And if you recall last week, this king owns 127 provinces he rules. He decides to throw a 187-day party. To show off how great he was. To show off his wealth. To show off his might. To show off his control. The narcissist to the extreme. 187 days to show off how great he was. But what was really interesting. Is this man was trying to show how much control he had. But when he told his wife Vashti to come. She didn't come. He couldn't control his own wife. It was a good thing she didn't come, because in that day, a deplorable treatment of women was what is depicted here, women as objects rather than women as made in the image of God, women to be looked at rather than women to be valued and to be learned from, rather than the sense of equality, there was this massive sense of disparity, superiority, and demeaning talk. So, of course, Queen Vashti shouldn't go, but it landed her out of the kingdom. She's no longer wife of King Xerxes, Ahasuerus. And so, we see chapter 2. And after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, had abated, he remembered Queen Vashti most commentators agree this remembrance is a remembering of regret because I don't know if you remember why did he kick his wife out it was because he was in a drunken stupor not thinking straight asked his wise counselors and so they got rid of his wife now he doesn't have his wife so he's kind of missing her not only that but we know in human in history that King Xerxes Right after this decree was issued and Queen Vashti was sent out, he goes out to try to conquer more lands and he goes to the black box, which is Greece. And it was there in Greece that he made a military mistake and he was defeated. And what we read from Esther chapter 2 forward is that Queen Xerxes comes back defeated and is basically in seclusion in the capital city of Susa for the rest of his reign and the rest of his life. And so, he's in regret mode, and he's hurting. His wife's not here. He's just been defeated. Where does this man who has found security in his wealth and in his power go when he doesn't seem to be able to control things? This is a note. Whatever you win your security with is what you have to keep your security with. And he tried to win it with his power, with relationships. But what happens when the power goes and the relationships falter? Where's your security then? Well, I wish I could say that in chapter 2, he turns to God and worships him. But no, he has counselors. He's got people who are caring for him with the values of the world. And here's what he says in chapter two, then the king's young men who attended him. So they see his sadness and they come and now they make a plan. King, what do you think about this? Now we've already seen the king's character, okay? He's out for himself, he's degrading of women, and he only wants what will please him. So here's their plan and you tell me what he thinks of this plan. Hey king, let's have a beauty contest, okay? In order to find out, Who should be your next wife? And here's the plan. We're going to go through out the entire empire. And the grid is going to be they're young. They've never been married. And they're beautiful. What do you think about those rules? He's like, okay. So then they go out all throughout Susa. And they go and they take these women. These women aren't volunteering for this mess. We see that later on. They take these women, and they're a part of this beauty contest. And so for a year, they will receive all kinds of spa treatments, all kinds of eating feuds to enhance their beauty. And then one by one, they'll be marched into his quarters. Because we have children in the room, I will be less than specific. But relations that should only be saved for husband and wife were part of the ceremonies. One by one. And if they made the cut, then they might be asked back. This was the idea. So what do you think this king thought of this? Well, it says in verse 4, this pleased the king. He said, let's do it. It's not commendable. It's atrocious. But what we find in this first section is the values of the world... And their emphasis on what is beautiful is what is valuable. Now, where do I get that? Now, when you're reading the scriptures, you want to look for repeated words. The author is repeating certain phrases for a reason. Look at verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out. Look at verse 3. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem. And then it says in the end of verse 3, let their cosmetics be given to them. Give them all the makeup they need to, be make, to make them externally beautiful. And then there's two new characters that are going to be introduced into the story. A man named Mordecai and a woman named Esther. Look at verse 7. And look at how she's described. Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. What is emphasized in Esther chapter 2 is the value of that culture. And dare we say the value of our culture. That external beauty is what equals significance and value. I was reading the New York Post article that stated a, a research had been done that men spend three thousand dollars a year on products to make them look good and women spend thirty seven hundred dollars a year which means in an average lifetime men will spend about a hundred and seventy five thousand dollars On things to make them look good. And women will spend about a quarter of a million dollars. On things to make them look good. Why? Why do we have this massive interest in outward appearance? What is that? Well it's what we're told. You watch any movie. And physical beauty is what is trumpeted. You watch any of these award shows and for the next several days, what is in your news feed are all the different outfits that they have worn, all the different fashion that has been on display because physical beauty is what matters. And might I add, those numbers do not include clothing and shoes. Just weight loss, hair care products, anti-aging cream, makeup, whatever it is. We are obsessed with external beauty. And my heart hurts because there's many women and men who walk around in a sense of shame and brokenness. Because they don't feel like they measure up and they are bearing a weight that they were never meant to bear. And that is your value is equated with your beauty. That your external look is what makes you important or significant. May it never be. May it never be. On the contrary, what it says in the scriptures. First Samuel 16 says this. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is when they were. He was trying to tell who would be king he says Samuel do not look on his that is Saul's appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees God looks through different lenses to evaluate beauty and worth and significance man looks at the outward appearance this is not just an American thing This is an Esther 2 thing. This is a history thing. Man looks at the outward appearance, but Lord looks at the heart. There's something that the Lord looks at that's below the surface that says, that's what makes you beautiful. Every single night, I pray over my little girl. Last night was no exception. I was praying over her and. As I was praying, obviously I had this sermon on my mind and I was just drawn. oh God, protect her. She is going to be and is already inundated with a definition of beauty, body type, definition of beauty, what you wear, definition of beauty of your weight, All of these things inundated from the cartoons and shows she watches to what about when she goes to school? It's what people talk about. I love your shirt, nice shoes, your hair looks good. It's what people make fun of. Did you see what they were wearing? Did you see how her hair looks? It's what creates fights. you get jealous comparison erodes in it's because beauty is defined by the world rather than by God and my prayer is like oh God protect my little girl and I pray God protect this church protect the women of this church may they know that they are valuable because they are made of the image of God they are valuable because God loves them. Their security is in God's love, not what other people think, not their external beauty. It's so hard. Peter tells us, this is a famous passage that talks about this. First Peter chapter three, he tells us this. Don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear He goes on to say, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The follower of Jesus says, I want the precious sight. I want God to say, you're precious. I want his sight to be upon me. And there's a beauty that is perishable and there's a beauty that is imperishable. And he says, the beauty that is imperishable is the one that leans into Jesus and surrenders their significance and security into his arms. We listen more to what he says about us than what others say about us. And I know it's a fight. But oh, may we be a people who work on the imperishable beauty of the heart. But then here's what inevitably happens. Some people go to extremes. And they hear this. And then they're like, yep, that's right. They look at this passage. No braiding of the hair. Anybody braids their hair? Then they've spent too much time. Not enough time with Jesus. And then you go on. The putting on of gold. Oh, look at them wearing that jewelry. How dare they? And then you go to the next passage. And the wearing of clothing. Look at them wearing clothes. (laughs) Oh, wait. So maybe there's another way to interpret this passage. Maybe it's not stop doing this. But maybe it's. This should be secondary. And this before Almighty God should be primary. Don't make the beautiful hairstyles and fun jewelry. Makeup, clothing, don't make up your don't make it your obsession. Because I can tell you this. Somebody who wears makeup and somebody who doesn't wear makeup and the person who doesn't wear makeup can have as much of an obsession about their appearance and about their beauty as somebody who does man looks at the outward appearance don't we judge based upon externals this is what happens we begin to create rules and then our rules are somebody else's rules when jesus is saying this is about pursuing me This is not primarily about how many hours do you spend in front of the mirror? How long did it take you to get your hair done? Well, that shows an obsession. It's about your heart. And then, as God shapes your heart, He will work in your spirit to say this far and no further. This has become an obsession. God will shape that heart. But may we be careful. Not to define significance and value and beauty as the world defines it. It is not external. It is a beautiful, imperishable beauty. The beauty of the heart that God wants to commend. And that's why in Isaiah 66 too, you hear this. All these things my hands have made. Let's be clear. People, creation, it is beautiful. And it's okay to say that. I tell my wife she's beautiful a lot. It's okay to say that. That's not the evil. The evil is what's the emphasis. And this is where Isaiah goes here. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the one the Lord's gaze is uniquely drawn to is the humility, the repentant heart. The one who loves the word of God. Stands open to correction. Follows him. Wherever he calls. So may we work on this imperishable beauty. But now we go to the second idea which is faithfulness. Conforming versus transforming. And I told you there were two characters that were introduced into the story. First one's name is Mordecai. Second one's name is Esther. So look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa. Now let's stop right there. He doesn't give us his name first, he describes his ethnicity. That's important. While you read the scriptures, why didn't he say there was a guy named Mordecai and he was a Jew? He front ends it. There's this Jewish man. His name is Mordecai. Why is that? Because we know that they are in exile because the Jewish people rebelled against God. And we were told that their rebellion, it says, "Oh, be in Isaiah chapter 1, be a faithful city. Be a faithful city, but you have become a whore, it says in the scriptures. You used to be characterized by justice repent and they didn't repent and they were exiled and so what we have is this exiled people and now mordecai is a second or third generation exile we read that in verse six who had been carried away from jerusalem among the captives carried away with jeconiah king of judah whom nebuchadnezzar king of babylon had carried away just as i said babylon came in Nebuchadnezzar took him, took him back to Babylon. So he's a second or third generation exile. But he's described as a Jew because you're also supposed to think this. The Jews followed the Mosaic law at this point. And as they followed the Mosaic law, it meant that they ate certain foods. And they abstained from certain foods. And it also meant that if they married, they married Other Jews. They did not marry um, uncircumcised Gentiles. And we know that they worshiped the one true God. They didn't worship multiple gods. And so he's setting the table for this man was a Jew. We have the category from other places in the scriptures of what these Jews should have lived their lives like. And so it says Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, and son of Kish means he was a descendant of the king Saul um, in 1 Samuel. And he had been carried away. Now in verse 7, we see the second character. So Mordecai was there, but now he was bringing up, which means he was raising this woman. And here is the only person in all of the book of Esther That is explicitly said to have two names. Now it is extremely common to have multiple names. I already told you. King Ahasuerus was also called King Xerxes. Mordecai more than likely had two names. But in the scripture here. We are only shown. And it is only highlighted of Esther. And it says this. That he was bringing up Hadassah. That was her Jewish name. That is Esther. Which was her kind of Babylonian kingdom name. And many commentators agree that this almost sets up the tale of two worlds. It sets up a war. Will Esther follow her Jewish roots and walk as Hadassah? Or will Esther walk in the ways of the empire? Will she be Esther? Or will she be Hadassah? And so... Here's what we see. Esther was the daughter of his uncle. And Esther had a hard story. It says. For she had neither father nor mother. Esther was an orphan. She had lost both parents. And. Her dad's. Brother. I think it is. Uncle. Is Mordecai. And he raises her. So. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, it says in verse 8, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther, and then what are the next two words? Also what? Was taken. Okay, I want you to participate. Say those two words. Was taken. That means it wasn't voluntary. She was ripped away from her family and she was taken in. To be a part of this beauty pageant that was going on to see who would be the next queen. And so, when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai who had charge of the women. Verse 9, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. So there's this sense now that you have a choice. When she was taken into the custody, how will she live? Will she live as a Jewish woman or will she live as a woman of the empire? And what we begin to see is that she gave herself into the values of the world. The values of that empire. Because this man was looking at her and said, she is pleasing. Now, just that statement doesn't mean that she's giving herself over. But let's keep reading. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food. Now, food is important because what was a Jew supposed to do? When you got offered pork, you were supposed to say, whoa, hold it now. I'm a Jewish person. Can I have this type of food? There's no sense here that she is requesting a faithful kosher diet. Instead, she is living in the ways of the empire. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, this is how we also are tipped off that she is not living according to her Jewish background. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And what we begin to see is this 12 months of her going through this whole beauty preparation She never discloses her faith. Never discloses her ethnicity. It's never seen. Instead, she just begins to win favor and win favor and win favor. And so in verse 11, and just like a good father figure should do every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was And what was happening to her. He was checking up on her. So in verse 12. Now when the turn came for each woman. To go in to King Ahasuerus. Now they're going to describe the process. Here's the way it was going to roll. When it came time for the woman to go into King Ahasuerus. After being 12 months under these regulations for the women. Since there was a regular period of their beautifying. Six months of oil and myrrh. And six months of spices and ointments. Some even think that they would sit in baths of this stuff. I mean they just went through the ringer. Now, verse 13, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return. And the king would have his way with this woman and find out if he wanted to have her back or not. And this was the beauty pageant. Are you beautiful? And then do you meet the grade, so to speak? It's horrible. It's horrible. So that was the story. And then it says she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abahel, the uncle of Mordecai. So he was the uncle of Abahel who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, had recommended. So what we see there is that she did exactly what Mordecai said. She did exactly what Haggai said, which is going to show us that later on, there is a sense of honor and eventual obedience. But right now she is conforming to the world. Now Esther was winning favor, it says in the end of verse 15. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So there was no sense that she was bucking the system with her Jewish traditions. But there is every sense that she was being fully accepted by the culture around her. In verse 16, when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into the royal palace, Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Punchline, she got married to the Gentile king. These things begin to tip us off that Esther, Esther subtly and slowly began to conform the ways of the world the ways of the empire now i want to show you something because i know that sometimes when i've read esther i haven't read it this way and this can be a little confusing but i told you that jesus had an order to his bible when we did our previous series why we can trust the bible here's the order and esther is down here it's the fourth book from the end and esther is gathered by the, what's called the post-exile writings. So these are the writings that have to do with what's happened after the exile. Now Esther, here, follows Lamentations and then is followed by Daniel. What's the story? Lamentations laments all the pain of those being exiled away. Esther is a story of how one individual was faced with death and ended up choosing to To say, if I perish, I perish. Follows what was best for the people of Israel. But then we see Daniel right after that. He too was faced with the threat of his life. But what we see with Daniel is that there was another way to respond. When faced with what do I do? Let's be really clear. We know what would have happened to esther if she would have said i got to eat these foods i'm going to worship my god and i just want to talk to you king i don't want to be with you with you we know what would have happened she would have been removed she would have lost the contest it would have been over and she might have been killed who knows suffering would have been her story the question is what do we do if we know what is right and yet we might face suffering daniel gives us another glimpse into what it could have looked like. In Daniel chapter 1, when he was faced with what should you eat, here's what Daniel says. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel knew this decision meant that if God didn't show up, he would probably be killed. He would probably suffer. But Daniel chose to say, I'm going to choose God. I'm going to choose his ways and I will not rebel against his commandments. What do we also know in Daniel chapter 3? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced with, should they bow down and worship? What did they say? They say, no, we will not. And here's what we hear. Daniel 3, 17 to 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's another way to respond. It's a way of desperation. It's a way that says, God, if you don't show up. I know I'm in trouble, but I trust you. And so we saw it. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel said he knew the document had been signed. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber and he opened them. And he fell down on his knees and prayed three times a day, giving thanks to God as he had done previously. There was another way to respond. And I just ask the question. I ask the question to me. I lay it out before you. Have you been tempted to conform? Have you been tempted to conform like Esther conformed? Could be subtle. Has the world's values become your values? Have you been tempted? Has there been a time when you knew God was calling you to do something? Something? but you feared the suffering that would come and you conformed to the world and chose another path. We've all been there. Not one of us is exempt. Romans 12 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. This is where I got this point. This conformed versus transformed. It's what's laid out in the scriptures. Esther chapter 2 shows Esther diving into a way of not of faithfulness. She conformed. This passage says don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't take on the values of the world. Make God's values your values. Look at 1 John chapter 2. It says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that loving the world does not mean loving the people in the world. It means loving what the world loves. Valuing what the world values over against what God values. He's saying, don't do that. Stand out. Be different. And so he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh is that immediate gratification. I want what I want. and I want it now. The desires of the eyes. Isn't that what the sin that Adam and Eve first committed was said, and it was delightful to the eyes. And so they ate of it. It's at the root of Sin. We dive in to where our hearts are given. We go there quickly. And then there's the pride of life. Just I can do this. The pride in humanity. Rather than humility. It's not from the Father. But it's from the world. These three things. And so this book. It's meant to prod us. Because by the end of the book. Right now you're looking at this. And what? The king Xerxes wants you to love is look at all my power, look at all my land, look at all my money, and look at everything that I have at my fingertips. And by the end of the book, you've almost forgotten him, and you're staring straight at Esther's faithfulness in Esther chapter 4, when she says, and if I perish, I perish. She gets to a point where she is willing to say, even if I have to lose it all, I'm going to be obedient. And this is the call for us today. The call is that we would repent and turn from conforming to the world. And we would set our lives before God. That he might transform us. That he might transform us by the renewing of our mind. I talk about this a lot with my teenagers. And I think that it is crucial. It's not just about what you do. It's about the amount of intake and volume you have. Once again, we want to make rules about things. Like, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. But here's what we miss. And rules are helpful. Don't hear me anti-rule man, okay? Boundaries are helpful. God has given clear rules in the scriptures that we must obey. Don't hear that. But here's what you need to hear. It's very easy for us to want to do Christianity by obeying rules. And our heart could be far from God. Here's what needs to happen is many times we have an intake problem. We're intaking so much from all these other voices. You're not the captain of your own ship. You're being shifted around by all kinds of things. By the media you listen to, the songs you listen to, the things you read, your friends, what they're saying. Everything is kind of coming at you. And if there is no intake from the scriptures, how in the world do you have any category to say this is right and this is wrong? How in the world do you have any strength at all to stand up against the wiles of the evil one? You don't. You are not impenetrable to his schemes and the word of God soaking it in is your only hope to know what is right and good. And so if there is intake and you're allowing Christ to pour into you and his word is coming in, then you will be able to say, because the spirit will prompt you, I don't think that's best to listen to. Or, Maybe I'm listening too much here or watching that is not good for me because the spirit of God is going. You felt that if you're a follower of Jesus, that sense of, whoa, this far, no further. This isn't good. It's called conviction. And it's the love of God for you. He's keeping you from destroying your life. He loves you. And he specializes in taking Failures, mistake-prone, sinful people like us, and using them for his glory. That's part of the story of Esther. A dear friend of mine wrote a book. Uh, he's a pastor in San Diego. His name's Tim Kane. He wrote the book called The God of Great Reversals. It's on the book of Esther. I've got several of them out there. You can get one if you want one. But here's a quote. He says this. That's the story you will find repeated over and over in the Bible. God takes sinners, compromisers, and failures, and he loves them and rescues them. And then, bit by bit, he changes them and uses them for his glory. That is the story of Abraham who lied to protect his wife. Of Moses who once murdered an Egyptian. Of David who slept with another man's wife. Of Peter who denied Jesus again and again. This is the story of Paul who persecuted the church. God specializes in rescuing broken stories and using broken, sinful people for his glory. Don't place yourself on the outside of God being able to work in your life. Use this as a moment in your life, a marker in your life. I no longer want to be conformed to this world. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to follow him. God transform me by the renewing of my mind. And if, if we begin to define beauty as God defines beauty, and if we begin to invest in Christ so that we have lenses to see what is conforming to the world and what's conforming to Christ, then the winds begin to blow away the clouds and you begin to see the fingerprints of God all over your life and all over Esther chapter two. How do you see it in Esther chapter two? How do you see it in all of this broken mess? Well, I tell you, didn't he say, In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, and the young woman had a beautiful figure. Who made her beautiful? In this broken system, the woman had to be beautiful in order to be taken. Who made her beautiful? God did. And then you see Esther chapter 2, verse 9, and it says, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. She might have been beautiful, but she still had to have a king who saw her as beautiful and wanted her to be the queen. God is at work. His fingerprints are all pressed up and in on this story as a means to deliver God's people. Look at Esther 2.17. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she was made queen. Esther being queen. The fingerprints of God upon the story. Esther 2.21 now takes us to the end of this chapter. And what we see is in verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And while he's sitting there, he overhears a murder plot. As Pastor Travis said last week, how many of you have set in on murder plots? Have you heard any of those? No, God's fingers are in this story. Mordecai hears it and then he tells it to Esther. But what if he told it to Esther and the story wasn't true? She would have been in trouble. Mordecai would have been in trouble. Instead, it was true. Those individuals were hung and it it rendered favor for Esther and Mordecai. All of this is to tell you God's fingerprints are all over this story and his fingerprints are all over your life, all over your life. We have been so used to walking through our week saying, where has God been or just forgetful of God. Or many times we're like the weather people who trumpet mother nature. It's mother nature who makes the winds blow. God says something different. He says this about the birds. You might say worm pops up, bird eats. That's natural. God says, no, look at the birds. I feed them. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. God's at work. He says, look at the lilies out there. The fact that they're white, their their glory is greater than King Solomon. Who made their glory that way? It was me. He's having them look at the field in that very moment. Who makes grass green? Or if grass dies, yeah, you made the grass die. No. No, you might have even put fertilizer on the grass and it's green. But at the end of the day, God closed the grass. This is where human responsibility and God's sovereignty are not at odds. It's a beautiful mystery, but God gets the ultimate credit. Grass is green because of God. And therefore, in your life, you can trust that God is always, always, always at work. He had you here this morning. His fingerprints brought you here. And he is calling you to surrender your life wholly to him. And so... Here's another quote from my friend Tim's book. I want you to think about it. If there were no feast, there'd be no drunk king. No drunk king, no call to his wife. No call to his wife, no refusal, no refusal, no angry king. No angry king, no foolish counsel, no foolish counsel. No Vashti disposal, no Vashti disposal, no Esther. No Esther, no Jews, no Jews, no Jesus, no Jesus, no hope. That's the story of Esther. Esther. God's fingerprints are all over it. One link in that chain, the whole thing falls apart. But yet, my sovereign God is at work in this story and in your life. And he wants you to look. Look for his love at the cross of Jesus Christ. And look at that promise that he's always with you until you see him face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we don't want to define beauty by the way the world defines beauty. And we don't want to be conformed to this world. And yet it is tempting. It is a draw. It pulls us in so many times. Father, I just ask. I ask that by your grace, we would repent of our sin. In our imperfection, we would go to you, the only perfect one. And we would begin to define beauty as you define it. We begin to work at internal beauty. So that external beauty is in its appropriate place. And Father, that we would love the people of the world, but that we would not take on these values. We would be different. We would love what you love, Father, and hate what you hate. And Father, I just pray that you would blow the clouds of cynicism, blow the clouds of doubt away, and help us to see your fingerprints all over our lives and the lives of our neighbors and use us to encourage one another to see you at work in each other's lives. And so, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, we just ask that this would be a time where we give to you our whole very lives. I pray surrender over this moment. I also pray for love. Maybe there's a need to reach out to our neighbor and love our neighbor. Pray for them in this moment. Whatever it is, Father, I ask that you would draw us in, remind us of your goodness, and help us to walk in faithfulness.